Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Let us not forget that we are simply instruments used by the Father to magnify the Son. And I pray, Father, that this message today would magnify your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's his his name that we pray. Amen. This will be the second part of this series that I started last time on the firstborn. The last time I was able to speak, I started this series in the wake of the teachings on Esau and Jacob. And we started to see how the Greek word prototokos was used in the New Testament. Prototokos is translated firstborn, and it's spelled in the Greek, well, I'll spell it in the English for you, P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And if you don't recall those teachings on Esau and Jacob and how we made the transition to the firstborn series, then you'll have to go back and listen to those if you have access to them, because we're not going to do that today. We don't have time to get to that. So as I mentioned in the first part of our series, this new series on the firstborn, I mentioned that the Greek word prototokos, again, it's firstborn, is used eight or nine times in the New Testament Greek depending on which Bible you have. Or more precisely, which Greek text one is using. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. The Holman Christian Standard Bible and the New English Translation, or sometimes known as the NET, the N-E-T, the English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible, are a few that are translated from the Greek language into the English, but they're translated from the Greek Nestle Allen text. And that is a, a, a Greek, a Greek uh, translation or a Greek text of the New Testament. And that Nestle Allen is N-E-S-T-L-E dash A-L-N-D. It's two people, Nestle Allen text. So in that Nestle Allen text, the word prototokos appears eight times in the New Testament Greek. However, in the Textus Receptus, which is more commonly known as the Receive text, and that actually comes from the Byzantine text, but uh, the Textus Receptus, you will see that word, Prototokos appear nine times in the New Testament Greek. English translations that are translated from that Greek text are the 
King James Version, Young's Literal Translation, the Jubilee Bible, and the English Majority Text Bible. Among others, those, those are some that are translated from the Textus Receptus Greek into the English. So when we're studying, it's always a good idea to not leave any stone unturned so that we can get the most understanding because our aim in studying, as Pastor Knapp has been bringing out in his series, is to see Jesus. Therefore, we need to get as close as we can to the original writing of the authors in the New Testament, which is the Greek text that we have access to today. Now, when, when I'm talking about these Greek texts, there are two major Greek texts of the New Testament. Greek New Testament texts. And there are others, but these are the two major ones. The first one that I've mentioned already ready is the Nestle Allen text, the 27th edition, that is, and the Textus Receptus. And we're not going to get into the history of either one of those texts and how they came to be. But I just want you to, to know what they are when I refer to them in this teaching. Now, that being said, in the first part of the series on the firstborn, we look briefly at Luke 2.7. Now, Luke 2.7 is the first place in the Nestle Allen Greek text where the word prototokos is used. So, in the Nestle Allen Greek text, the word prototokos is used eight times, and that is the first place where it's used in Luke 2.7. But in the Textus Receptus, Luke 2.7 is the second place where prototokos is used. So in the next two teachings, we're going to look at the first place where the Textus Receptus uses prototokos being that Luke 2.7 is the second place in that text where it's used, we're going to look at the first place, and that would be Matthew one twenty five. And I should have mentioned that beforehand, but you may want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. So Matthew one twenty five is the first place in the Textus Receptus Greek where the word prototokos is used. Now, hopefully I haven't lost you already. But I wanted to establish that because you may be looking in, if you have a home in Christian Standard Bible, you may be looking in there and you may say, hey, the, the word firstborn doesn't appear in here. And I wanted to, to let you know that it is translated from a different text than, say, the King James Version is. So in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we have this particular gospel's account of the birth of Jesus. Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 deals with the time after his birth with the three magi and Herod wanting to kill the newborn king, Jesus, 
But our focus is going to be on Matthew 1 because we're focusing on his birth. Now, we're going to go through today, we're going to get through today, Matthew one eighteen through 22. And as I go through these verses, I'm going to first give you the English Standard Version. And then I'm going to explain a little bit about that verse, and then I'm going to give you my translation. And when I say my translation, it's going to be an expanded translation. And I'm not adding anything to the scriptures, but you'll see when we get into it that I'm giving you the historical and the textual and the cultural surroundings of the time to give more understanding. Because Matthew, being written to Jewish people, would have understood more with, with what he is saying. But I'm giving you an expanded translation for our benefits because we're of a different culture. So the English Standard Version of Matthew one eighteen reads like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to have a little bit more context explaining this verse, you can look on your own time at Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. And this, that's kind of an extension of what this verse is saying. Within that passage, Gabriel visited Mary in Galilee and told her what was going to happen. And in verse 35 of that passage in Luke 1, Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So he says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's what the angel tells her. Meaning that God the Spirit would supernaturally implant the necessary chromosomes in Mary for her to conceive a child. Therefore, bypassing a human father. This is why in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he ends up with the son of Adam the son of God in Luke 3.38. What I mean by that in his genealogy, he goes back, he starts from Jesus and he goes back all the way to the beginning. So in essence, he would be saying in that genealogy, it says the son of Solomon, the son of David, the son of Jesse, and so on and so on until he gets to the end, to the beginning of it actually. And He says, the son of Adam and the son of God. That's in Luke 3.38. Jesus is humanity as the son of Adam, being born of a human mother. But he's deity as the son of God, because the Holy Spirit's power would infuse in Mary the pure divine chromosomes which would enable God to enter into his creation. 
Thus he's called the son of man and also the son of God because he encapsulates both. He calls himself the son of man often in the gospels. A few times he calls himself the son of God, but a lot of times other people call him the son of God, but he is called both the son of man and the son of God. There's one mediator between mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus in first Timothy two, five. He's the one mediator because he is now both God and man having been born into his creation, but he existed before anything was created in John one, one through two. And so we have more understanding of Matthew one eighteen, when the scripture says that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this is my expanded translation to give clarity to what is being said in Matthew one eighteen. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his earthly mother Mary had been betrothed, that is, engaged, to Joseph, before they came together in formal marriage and consummated their union, she was found to be with child from the divine power of the Holy Spirit. Now, continuing on in Matthew one nineteen, from the English Standard Version again, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now you may already be thinking, what do you mean her husband Joseph? And this can be a little confusing if we try to come at this with our Western mindset. And that's exactly why I'm giving expanded translations of these. Because in verse 18, we read that Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph. But in verse 19, he's called her husband. Now to us, that means two different things. And we have to, we have to understand that this is a different culture and we can't view it through the lenses of our own culture. To the Jews, engagement or a betrothal was a serious matter. A woman who was betrothed to a man was considered his wife already. Although they had not been formally married as of yet. Now this doesn't mean that they lived together, but rather that the engagement was binding and not lightly broken. So in other words, in our modern parlance, they were off the market, but not in the sense of the American sense, because nowadays Marriage to American people doesn't really mean much. You see people that were married for, for two months and they're getting divorced in the news and mostly famous people and things of that nature, or as famous as the world is. But let alone an engagement meaning something. But at this time, in the Jewish culture, if you were engaged, it was a big thing. It wasn't lightly broken. So if two people were engaged and one was unfaithful during the time leading up to the wedding, it was considered adultery 
and was punishable by death. This was serious. This wasn't a joke. Now, this can be seen in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, where if a virgin is betrothed and lies with another man, then both the woman and the, the, both the woman who was engaged and the man who laid with her sexually are to be put to death by stoning. Now, this was a, woman, was a woman who was betrothed, and it's the same Greek word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word in Deuteronomy 22 as we find in our passage in Matthew 118. Therefore, this was a serious matter that Joseph had to contemplate. Because he obviously loved Mary, or if he didn't, he would have immediately gave her over to be stoned. When he heard from her that she was pregnant with with child. Now, although the text doesn't specify that Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant because of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, it certainly implied that she told him. And that might have been kind of hard for Joseph to swallow at first. Hey, she comes. I could just see it right now. Mary comes up to to Joseph and says, hey, Joe, well, (laughs) I got something to tell you. I'm pregnant. But it's not what you think. It's not what you think. An angel came to me and said that God was going to supernaturally by his power, caused me to be pregnant. And Joseph would probably go, what? (laughs) So this might have been a hard story for him to swallow. Sometimes we lose the human element of the scriptures when we read it because we know the end of the story. But we lose the human element that these were human beings. So it might have been hard for him to swallow at first. So he figured that he would divorce her. But not in public disgrace and having her put to death, but rather loving her and being a righteous man. He could write a bill of divorce and send her home with it in Deuteronomy 24.1. Therefore, she wouldn't be stoned because he wouldn't specify the reason. That's why it says that he was going to put her away Quietly. Now, the reason that I'm giving detail on these verses leading up to Matthew 125, where the word prototokos, which I mentioned at first, the firstborn, where that word's used in the Textus Receptus, the reason why I'm doing this is threefold. First, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So we can learn something from all scripture. Secondly, I like to bring out the context and give clarification of the culture and the culture that's surrounding that time in order to give you, the listener, 
a little bit more clarity and understanding of what's happening and why. And thirdly, and this is, this is an important one. And thirdly, these verses are vital. They're vital. They're vital in setting up the prophecy from Isaiah, which will be cited in this section of Matthew. So with that said, this is my expanded translation of Matthew 119. Although they were not officially married, the law of infidelity still was binding in the engagement. So her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to have her be a public spectacle by being shamed and then stoned to death, resolved in his mind to divorce her and send her home privately, not involving the judge. Now let's continue into Matthew 120. And while Joseph was contemplating all this, that was before him now, that's when the angel of the Lord came to him and gave verification to the story which Mary told him. Matthew 120, English Standard Version again. But as we considered, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We come to realize through this that God didn't only choose Mary for the magnificent privilege of being the vehicle from which the Messiah would emerge. But he also chose Joseph, who was a virtu virtuous and righteous man. He chose him to be the protector of Mary and the precious life of the Son of God, which was conceived in her womb from the Holy Spirit. Joseph was highly esteemed by God because the task of being Mary's guardian while she was pregnant, would turn into the assignment of keeping Jesus safe after his birth. Now, we obviously know that God the Father would not let anything happen to his son until he got to the cross. We see that throughout this, the New Testament. But God chose Joseph to be the human guardian of Jesus when he was in the womb, and when he was a child. And Joseph would have to be sensitive to the guidance of the Lord, as is seen when he moves his family to Egypt before the massacre perpetrated by Herod on the male children two years old and younger in Matthew 2, 13 through 16. So the Lord not only chose Mary, but also Joseph. And we come to realize that from passages like these. When we start to really understand what's going on here, we start to realize that Joseph was chosen by God. He just wasn't an innocent bystander here, but he was chosen because he was a virtuous man. And this is how I expand verse 20 to give a broader picture of what's taking place. 
But as he was considering these things, which Mary had told him, and was contemplating divorcing her, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph is being instructed by the angel here in Matthew as Mary was in Luke 1. And the angel continues to give him understanding of what exactly is happening in verse 21 of Matthew 1. Matthew 121, English Standard Version again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So the question that we ask, we have to ask about this verse, the question that we have to ask is, who are his people that Jesus is going to save from their sins? Is it only going to be the Jews? After all, Jesus was born of the Jewish nation. He was a Jewish man. Is it only going to be the Jews? Or are his people only those people who believe in these mortal bodies? Now, there are some who think the first option is correct, and there's more people, many more people, who think that those are his people are only those who believe in him in this mortal state. But both are only partially correct. Because his people are all mankind. The whole of the human race, that's his people. And in order to get clarity on this, we can incorporate what I call scriptural Congruency. Now, the meaning of congruent, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is when two things are in agreement or or harmonious. Congruent. It's also used in geometry to describe figures which are identical in form. They coincide exactly when superimposed. In other words, when one is put on, on top of another one, they're exact. If you put a rhombus on another rhombus and they are congruent, they are going, you're going to slip it right on top of it and you're not going to know that there's a different rhombus on top. It's going to look like there's one. They're the same. Scriptural congruency is what I used to refer to as different camera angles. If, if you've ever heard any of my previous teachings, I may have used that terminology, and I, I talked about different camera angles. But I've now refined that to a term I call scriptural congruency. Now, this is when different books of Scripture talk about the same event. They're congruent in that they're the same event, even though they're in two different books. Objects, which are congruent in geometry, mean that you can superimpose one over the other. 
and they, they will be identical in shape. It doesn't matter if the one is red or the other one is green. They're still congruent being that they're the same shape. So, so it is with the scriptures when we see scriptural congruency. They're different books, in my analogy, different colors, red and green. They're different books, but they're speaking about the same event. They're the same shape in the geometric analogy. One may give different details than the other, but nonetheless, they are the same event and therefore they are congruent. What we're studying here in Matthew 1 is an account of the birth of Christ. Therefore, looking at a congruent passage, we gain more understanding. Because scripture interprets scripture. Everything is not said in one passage of scripture. That's why we have the whole Bible. In Luke 2, which is another account of the birth of Jesus. In Luke 2, there was a multitude of angels that appeared to the shepherds, keeping watch over the sheep in the fields near Bethlehem. And one of the angels proclaimed to them in Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Notice the angel didn't say that I bring you good news for Rome because it's going to crush or it's going to be crushed by the Messiah. Or I bring you bad news for Rome that it's going to be crushed by the Messiah and good news for Israel. It didn't say that. Or I bring you great news for some people on the earth and damnation for the rest. They didn't say that either. No. The angel said, I bring you good news. Euangelizomai. That's spelled E-U-A-G-G-E-L-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Euangelizomai. And that's defined by Gingrich in his lexicon as this. And I want to quote it. Quote, more specifically, of the divine message of salvation, the messianic proclamation, that is the gospel. So the angel says, I bring you good news or the message of divine salvation, which is great joy, which is from the word megas, in the accusative sense, which denotes motion motion toward an object. That's important because it's great joy going towards somebody. It's great joy for who? For all, panti, P-A-N-T-I in the Greek, for all the people. So my expanded translation without all the insertions in Luke 2.10 reads like this. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you 
good news of divine salvation, which is great joy that will be for all people. In using scriptural congruency, we see that the people who Jesus came to save from their sins in Matthew one twenty one, it's not limited to the nation of Israel. And it's not limited to those who believe in these mortal bodies. But it's for all people in Luke 2.10. Isaiah 49.6 states that the Lord's salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, salvation for all mankind. So the angel is telling Joseph here in Matthew 121, the universal message of Jesus, the universal saving message of Jesus for all mankind. That's what this angel is telling him. Because if you remember what I said about the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 338, and this is important. The genealogy of Jesus is very important. And if you remember what I said, it ends up with the son of Adam and the son of God. Being that Jesus is the son of Adam, he's born of humanity. And therefore, his people are the whole human race. Because we've all come from Adam. As 1 Corinthians 15.45 says. And it explains there that Adam was the first man. Therefore, being that Adam was the first man, it only stands the reason that we trace our lineage back to Adam. That actually is something that today needs to be understood because of everything that's going on in this world today. And it, it would be a... And alleviate a lot of misunderstanding. But being that Jesus had no human father, but was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary. Then he also is the son of God. He's God and man in one person. Therefore, the only one qualified to become the cure for the plague which was on mankind from Adam, which is sin resulting in death. So we gain the understanding of the phrase that's spoken by the angel. He will save his people from their sins. His people are the sons of Adam. It's all humanity. This is the universal message of divine salvation for all people that Joseph was hearing from this angel. And so I want to reflect that in my expanded translation of Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people. That is the whole human race from their sins. Now, as we get deeper into this passage in Matthew 1, we're gaining more momentum 
and acquiring more comprehension of the magnitude of who Jesus is and what he will accomplish on his mission. And this is all building a case for my translation of Matthew one twenty-five, where we find the word firstborn, which is prototokos in the Greek of the Textus Receptus. So let's continue and look at Matthew one twenty-two, And this, again, English Standard Version. All this took place to fulfill. That word is key here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, the prophet that's mentioned here is Isaiah. And we're going to look at that passage in depth. Next message. But first, I want to address another word which is found in this verse, and that word is plerao in the Greek. I'll spell it in the English for you. P-L-E-R-O-O, plerao, and it's translated as fulfill. And it does mean that. It it means fulfill. It's not translated incorrectly. It means fulfill. It also carries the meaning of to fill up or to complete or bring to an end or finish. But what I want to ask you today is what does it really mean when something is said to be Fulfilled. Have you ever thought about that? What does it really mean when something is said to be fulfilled? I'll give you two definitions from our English dictionaries of what fulfill means. The American Heritage Dictionary defines fulfill as to bring to actuality. To bring to actuality. The Oxford Dictionary defines fulfill as bring to completion, achieve or realize. And this is, this is the one to bring to reality, to bring to reality. This is going somewhere and I'm going to give you an example of what I'm getting at with this. And we're going to keep going with it. Last year, my family and I, we were going on a vacation. And it was going to be a vacation to a place that we've never been before. It was going up to New England. And because our destination was Maine, and it's a pretty long drive from Pennsylvania, we decided to break it up. So we were going to be gone for 10 days. So during that time, we were doing a whole bunch of planning and we were getting all of our inputs of what we wanted to do in the specific areas where we were going to stop. So in the planning phase, we decided to to go to Vermont, North Bennington, Vermont, to be exact, where Pastor Knapp grew up. And we heard many things about that area. And then we also, from there, we, we were going to Boston. 
and Boston, we were going to go take in a Red Sox game. Go, go Sox. And Rick will like that. And then from there, we were going to go to New Hampshire to the White Mountains. And eventually, we were going to end up in Maine and stay there for the duration of the trip. But this was all in the planning phase. This was all in the planning phase. But when we left, and we had heard many things about all these different areas that we were going to. When we left and we, we got to the Green Mountains of Vermont, beautiful area, small country town, but beautiful area. And it's just, it's wonderful with the mountains, the green mountains and uh, the monument there tucked in the mountains. It's, it's a fantastic place to go. And then we went over to the big city of Boston. But what I'm saying is, is that all these things were only ideas, only shadows in our mind because we had never experienced them before. But once we got to these places, they became reality to us. And then we got to the White Mountains, which is breathtaking. And then finally, we got to Maine, which is like no other place I've ever been. It was fantastic. But so these places became reality to us. Whereas before, they were just stories that we've heard about these places. Therefore, I'm going to continue on and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Therefore, giving an expanded translation of Matthew one twenty two to give the sense of what's being said here, I translated it this way. And all this took place to bring to complete reality what was spoken by the prophet. Now, Jesus Christ is complete reality. Pastor Napas said that many times. He is complete reality. All the scriptures testify about him. And in John 5, 39, he was talking to the Jews and he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have the life the coming age. And yet it's they that testify about me. The true reality of the scriptures was standing right in front of them. But they were still looking in the shadows. They were still looking in the shadows while the substance was before them. Colossians 2.17 Colossians 2.17 talks about new moons and festivals. These were simply just shadows of which Jesus Christ is the substance. He's the true reality of these things. Luke 24.44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Meaning, this is after his resurrection. He's speaking to his Disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Same word, play ra'o. But let's put it in the way that I'm talking about right here and see if it doesn't make something click a little more. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be brought completely to reality. Now, this is the same word, plerao, which is used in our passage in Matthew one twenty-two. The Old and New Testaments, they're not two different versions of God. Many people think that they are. Many people think that the Old Testament is a, a God of wrath and fury, while the New Testament is a God of, of love and peace. It's all one account of the same God. It's all one account of Jesus Christ, who's loving and only wants the highest and best for us in his creation. Now, the amazing thing is, is that he accomplishes all this divine good through human history in which he sent his uniquely born son, the father that is, and he sent his son to bring everything back to him. He accomplishes all this divine good through human history. So when we look at the Old Testament, we're observing God working within human history. He's working within human history and brings about his will while operating amongst humans who try to thwart his plan, which is for their own good. And we spoke about this in the last teaching that we did with Esau. We talked about even those people who try to thwart his plan, that he incorporates them into his divine plan of salvation for all people, such as Pharaoh, such as Pilate. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Now listen to this. In the light of what we're talking about, listen to this. Specifically, Isaiah 46, 9b through 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Now, when we think of the word fulfill, we attribute the connotation of it as something coming to completion because of something else which happened prior. The connotation, in other words, not the definition or the denotation of it, but the connotation, what we attach to the word fulfill. We think of it that way in that something that happened prior is the reason why this is fulfilled. In other words, there's an A, so there of necessity needs to be a B. And this is the wrong way to think of the word fulfill, that is, plerao. Rather, we ought to understand that this was in the mind of God before he created anything. Because listen, because he promised this before the ages began in Titus 1-2. He promised this before the ages began. 
So let me read this again. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So when we see that this was done in order to fulfill a given prophecy in the Old Testament, we don't want to think that because in human chronology, in human chronology, we don't want to think because in human chronology, the prophecy was given first in the Old Testament. So now Jesus had to do or say a certain thing in order to fulfill it. He had to do it in order to fulfill it. Rather, we ought to think that the prophecy was just a shadow and a teaching aid to show what Jesus Christ would accomplish in reality. And that reality was already done in the mind of God before he created anything. Remember, he's declaring the end from the beginning. People say all these things were fulfilled at all these prophecies. How many prophecies were fulfilled in the New Testament? They're thinking of it backwards. I mean, they're, they're, what I'm saying is they're attributing that because there was an A, there was a prophecy that Jesus had to fulfill it because it's the B. But they're flip-flopping it the way that really we really should think about it. Jesus, he would accomplish all these things in reality. And that reality was already done in the mind of God before he created anything. Now to say it another way while giving definition and hopefully a little bit more clarity of what I'm talking about. The lamb, which was slain and the blood put on the doorpost in, in Egypt, was done in order to teach the Israelites and us, because Paul says that these things were written for our instruction as well. It was done in order to teach Israel and us that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. If you, you can look at Exodus 12, that whole chapter, in connection with 1 John 2.2. 2. So Jesus Christ coming into his creation as the God man would bring to reality for us what was already done in the mind of the Trinity. He was bringing it to reality for us. It was already a reality to God because God's outside of the restraints of time. But for a season, we're still in it. So getting back to Matthew 122, all this took place to bring to complete reality what was spoken by the prophet. 
the visitation of the angel to Mary in Luke 1 and the divine conception of Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit's power explained here in Matthew 1 are all leading up to the prophecy which was spoken by Isaiah. But this prophecy that is cited in Isaiah 7 would become reality in the birth of Jesus documented here in our passage. And all that I've been saying throughout this message is putting meat. It's putting meat on the bones of what the reality of the prophecy would mean. Jesus entered his creation by means of a virgin in order to accomplish all of the Father's will. And this will of the Father would be to unite all things in heaven and on earth in his Son, Christ Jesus, by means of the blood of his cross in Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20. And this will further be seen in our next teaching when we visit the passage in Isaiah 7. And then we're going to come back to Matthew and see how the Textus Receptus Greek ends this portion of rich scripture. And my hope is that, that you'll have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he's done for his creation after this small little passage. You may, may be seeing it in a, in a different light. So today I'm going to end with my expanded translation that I've given from Matthew one eighteen through 22 to hopefully give cohesion and, or, and, and cohere everything that we've said today and that we've covered. This is my expanded translation of what we've covered today. Leading up to that prophecy in Isaiah and finally to the passage where the firstborn is used in Matthew one twenty five. Matthew 1, 18 through 22. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his earthly mother Mary had been betrothed, that is, engaged to Joseph, before they came together in formal marriage and consummated, consummated their union, she was found to be with child from the divine power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Although they were not officially married, the law of infidelity still was binding in the engagement. So her betrothal, her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to have her be a public spectacle by being shamed and then stoned to death, resolved in his mind to divorce her and send her home privately, not involving the judge. Verse 20. But as he was considering these things, which Mary told him, and was contemplating divorcing her, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the power of, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people that is, the whole human race, from their sins. And finally, verse 22. And this, all this took place to bring to complete reality what was spoken by the prophet. And as I said, these verses are vital 
in leading up to the prophecy of Isaiah. And we're going to dive into that pretty deep in our next teaching. And all this is going to add validity to why the word firstborn and how it is used in Matthew 125. Father, we thank you for the firstborn, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into his creation. He came into it to save that which was lost. Not only save that which was lost, but to lift it up to a position that was extremely, infinitely higher than it ever could be otherwise. We ask that you would take what was spoken today by the, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would take these words and would utilize them to add comfort, to add understanding, and to add more of a love for who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ truly is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.